Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings and cities and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Aquafil, synthetic materials producer of Econil. A couple of weeks ago, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson got into a bit of a pickle with some remarks ahead of the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, which happened in Glasgow. A group of 8 to 12-year-olds met the Prime Minister at 10 Downing Street this week and asked him, what will you do to make sure less plastic gets into the oceans? Now, Johnson did what he does best and pissed off a whole bunch of people. He got a lot of plastics manufacturers and associations really upset when he said, recycling isn't the answer. Is he right? That's the question we're going to try and answer today. What is the problem with recycling plastics? We have two segments for you. In segment one, materials guru, Dr. Andrew Dent, who consults with big global brands on what their products should be made of, takes us through the ins and outs of how we can address our plastics problem. And in segment two, we'll hear a success story from Giulio Bonazzi, CEO of plastics manufacturer Aquafil, who managed to wean an entire division of his company off of virgin plastic. Segment one, our plastics problem. When I tell you we need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, what comes to your mind? Gas-guzzling SUVs? Airplanes jetting around the world? Nope. You should be thinking about carpets, windows, roofing, and building insulation. By 2050, the largest driver of oil and gas demand in the world won't be fuel and energy, it will be plastics. And the number two application of plastics in the world today, second only to packaging, is the building industry. We need to start preparing now to break our building's reliance on fossil fuel derived plastics. I sat down with Dr. Andrew Dent EVP of Materials Research at Material Connection to understand the strategies that work and don't work with different types of plastics commonly used in architecture and interior design. Here's Dr. Dent. My name's Andrew Dent. I'm EVP of Research at a company called Material Connection. It's a global resource for innovative and sustainable materials. We have a library here in New York City, as well as locations around the world. We have an online database, and we also provide consulting work for a range of different clients, which is basically the entire area of the consumer-facing product uh, industry. So basically anything that's, that you as a consumer interact with, whether it's a building, whether it's a, a car, your phone, your clothes, we help clients within those industries find better materials for their products. Andrew, it's interesting that you talked about, you know, sustainable materials. Can you talk just a little bit more about Material Connection's focus on sustainability? 
We believe that sustainability needs to be central to any material choice, any product, anything that you're doing right now, you need to be considering sustainability and even more so circular economy as well. So for us, sustainability is a rather nebulous word. So we tend to break it down into attributes. So rather than thinking, is a material or product sustainable, is does it use less water? How much water does it it save? What's the percentage of recycled content? So we can break it down to quantifiable numbers. And that's the way we sort of talk when we're we're dealing with eco or green or sustainable issues. We we do believe it's not just the material that you use, but also the way in which you use it. So I think uh, when I talk to my students, we basically say there's no such thing as a sustainable material. They're really just sustainable uses of materials. So you can have the most wonderful sort of bio-based or recycled content material in the world, but if you're using it improperly and using it in a, perhaps an application where it's not durable enough or where it's, you know, where it's not, not, not the right solution, then that, that, that defeats the purpose. So for us, sustainability is much more a considered approach using certain materials, but also a very holistic approach, not just material choice, but also how do you design with it? Is it the right application? And also, have you considered what could be done with it at the end of its life? I think that's really interesting. You know, those of us who we were taught in school that one of the first things you can do is sort your your garbage properly, you know, in order to do right by the environment. Put put the right things in the right recycling bins. And many of us, you know, you move to a new city and it has new rules about recycling and what you can recycle, what you can't. So recycling has really been such an important part of how we think about our duty as citizens towards the planet. And you just talked about the importance of how materials are used. How does that affect recycling? First of all, let's talk about the basics of recycling. So yes, uh, I as an average consumer, I I live in Brooklyn, I sort my plastics. The challenge is, of course, what exactly happens to those materials after I've sorted them out. So I do my part, and then I expect everyone else to do theirs. The challenge we had with recycling at the moment is that we're expecting an awful lot from it. We expect simply just put them in the right bins, therefore you solve the problem. I don't think that's correct. Recycling can be one aspect of a complete sort of approach to reducing impact on the environment, but it can't be the only thing. It can't be a panacea. So you need to consider recyclability in certain cases. But certainly for other areas, you need to reduce if possible. You need to think about compostability. You need to think about designing differently so that you don't need to put those materials out there in the first place. So recycling has its place, but we shouldn't expect recycling to be the, the only solution or even a perfect solution at the moment. Because we're starting to see now, not just with more exposés about the energy required and the complexity of recycling, but also that the oil companies have been very good at basically saying recycling is the solution. So we just put, just put more plastic out there into the world. I don't think that's right. I think we need to be a lot more careful with our use. And yes, recycling is getting better in terms of its ability to sort materials, to do it either through mechanical or chemical recycling, and we're getting better at it. But still, it's a very complex process, which often involves an awful lot of movement. I get my coffee cup or my my soda bottle, and I put it in the bin, okay? So then it somehow needs to be picked up by someone, and then it goes to a different sorting location, and it gets sorted, then it goes to a recycler. The recycler then chops it up or, or chemically recycles it. So there's a whole bunch of movement there before it ever gets back to being usable as an, another product. We were told to believe that recycling was this sort of this solution. And in our naivete and, and our, our desire to be good citizens, we want to recycle. But I think we're now aware of some of the challenges associated with that, that we, we should use recycling perhaps as a last result with many other options or alternatives being preferable to actually recycling. Because recycling is not going to be the one solution that will solve everything. Let's talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Recycling is tough. Can you give us an example of how tough maybe 
recycling certain very commonplace plastics, for example. Uh, are there plastics that we don't even know how to fully recycle yet? Well, as long as it's a thermoplastic, so therefore, as long as it will melt, we can recycle it. The challenge, of course, is how do you differentiate it? How do you differentiate one plastic from another? There are some basic ways you can do it, whether the plastic floats or sinks. We've got also better sort of more technical processes. Spectroscopy can do it. I actually read recently, they've now got a handheld way of, of determining the difference between nylon 6 and nylon 66. Two different types of nylon, which to the, the average eye would look exactly the same. And for most sorting facilities, wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but are important to separate. So we're getting better at recycling, but still, it is complex. Taking even the most basic materials and vinyl itself is, is really quite a hard material to recycle. It, it takes quite a bit of uh, processing. And the additional challenge, of course, is that if that vinyl or if the polyester or if the nylon, if it had any paint on it, if it had any dirt on it, if it wasn't washed that well, then you're getting contamination because these plastics themselves, they're not like a piece of granite, which is impervious. They're not like a piece of glass, which wouldn't stain. Plastics can get contaminants inside them. Think about when you when you microwave your tomato sauce in a, in a plastic container, it stains. That's basically the tomato sauce getting inside the plastic. So that happens on a very small level for many, many different types of plastics, which you wouldn't always see, but it's there. So contamination also becomes a problem. So how do you clean the material as well? So recycling requires not just going through and, and, and working out what the plastic is, it's then making sure that it's a specific type, making sure that it's not blended in any way. Because remember, many plastics are a combination of different types of plastics. Your phone, if it's a plastic phone, is a combination of ABS, which is the material that they make Lego bricks out of, and polycarbonate, which is a safety glass. So those two materials are blended together. So if you've got a combination, you can't pull those apart in any way. So that can't really be recycled effectively with either of those different plastics. It is complex. And even once you get to the point where you've got the shredded material and it's been cleaned, et cetera, then you need to be careful that you have a challenge with loss of performance. Because in shredding the material, you're kind of breaking it up a little bit. So by mechanically recycling whatever plastic is, let's say it's a soda bottle, you mechanically recycle it, so you chop it up with big, big teeth, and then those parts come small, and then you melt them and you make another soda bottle. But that soda bottle that you made out of it, if it's 100% recycled plastic, it's not as, well, as high-performing. It's not as good the second time around or the third time around. Mechanical recycling is also limited by its, its re reduction in performance. So you have a number of different concerns as you go from putting your bottle in the recycling bin to the point where you can actually have someone potentially use it again to make another bottle or a shirt. There's a whole bunch of steps there which can cause challenges to the material and also increase the cost of it and therefore make it slightly less viable economically. You know, Andrew, recently we've seen a lot of companies talk about reusing plastic from the ocean or, you know, finding old plastic in different sources. And there's some big names like Nike and ocean plastic has become this very common term we hear about all the time. But there is some value to recycling because we have to deal with all the all the stuff we've already put out in the world, right? Can you talk a little bit about those efforts that are going on in terms of finding sort of all the plastic flotsam and jetsam around the world and kind of turning it into new products rather than pulling oil out of the ground and making new products out of it? Mm -hmm. Yes. So ocean plastics are, are a good thing, as in using plastics that were once in the ocean is a good thing. I think it's not as simple as just sort of, I take my piece of plastic and I make it into a shoe, though. I think the, the main point of that is, as long as that vendor, that brand is also contributing to the general clean of, of, of that ocean. Because if I just take the materials I want, but don't clear up any of the other stuff, 
are not really helping that much. I think there needs to be an understanding that if I'm going to use ocean plastics, it's part of a part of a, an approach and endeavor that entails cleaning all different types of debris from the ocean. Because of course, if they're using nylon from the ocean, typically it's a fishing net. And that fishing net is going to be a 50, 100, 200 pound uh, lot of material. That's great. But I, I would like them also to make sure that we're cleaning out the, the smaller parts as well, which, which can be just as detrimental to, to ocean life. So it is good to clean the oceans. It is a necessary thing. I think the value that the brand can get from that is, is large, but I think there needs to be a commitment as well to ensure that it's not just for the brand value that you're doing it. You're actually doing it to improve the ocean's uh, quality. The materials also that you get from the ocean, sometimes they're not as good quality either because if they've been sitting in the ocean for six months, a year, a few years, chances are they've, they've broken down a little bit. They've, they've formed a biofilm, which everything does when it gets into the ocean. It's been broken down by sunlight. It's probably been eaten by microbes. So the material itself, it, you don't always get a, a high quality product from materials that come from the ocean because they've been sitting down, down there for quite a while. There's limitations there as well. So I think generally it's good it's good to clean the oceans. I think it's great for the brands because it, it shows that they, they have an awareness. I want to make sure also that we understand that it's not just let's take the nylon out for our shoes. Let's, let's clean the whole thing and make sure that we're doing a, you know, a general good to the ocean rather than just getting the material that we want. A little while ago, Andrew, you spoke about vinyl. And, you know, there's <laughs> I think vinyl is something that is just ubiquitous. It's everywhere in our lives. It's in flooring. It's in so many places. And yet, you know, quite recently, there was quite a big backlash against the material. And, you know, it's while folks are developing vinyl alternatives, there's still so much vinyl that's in the world, right? And it's a hard material to deal with. When it comes to really complicated materials to deal with like that, you know, talk about how recycling, could you tell us, like, is recycling a legitimate strategy there? And if so, what should we be careful about? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, not all vinyls are the same. The vinyls that we're producing now are way better than the stuff we were producing 10, 20 years ago. The vinyl industry has cleaned up an awful lot of the, the problematic chemicals it was using in, in, in flexible vinyls, so your, your upholstery materials. Those had phthalates, which, which uh, rendered the material flexible, and those are problematic. So we've, got, we've now got better phthalates, the, 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 the plasticizers or things that make the, the vinyl flexible. We've also solved um, some of the problems of its, of its production as well. So that we're producing it in cleaner ways, or at least some companies are anyway. So it is possible to get a much cleaner, much better vinyl than we did 10 or 20 years ago. Still doesn't stop the problem of it, it being a, a chemistry that is challenging. If burned, it, it produces dioxins. Its, its production itself is, uh, is using chlorine, an industrial process. So it has some challenges with its, 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 its materiality. At the end of its life, recycling is done, but not much at all. There were some attempts by some companies to recycle things such as large format signage and other sort of flexible vinyl materials. But that's really been the sort of post-consumer or post-manufactured recycling of that material. I think at the most of it is probably either landfilled or probably incinerated, you know, waste to energy. We think of recycling as being one option. You can also burn the material. You know, a lot of countries do this. Denmark does it because it doesn't really have much in terms of landfills. Denmark doesn't have enough space to create a new big landfill for itself. So it has to get rid of its waste in more creative ways. And that includes burning it. And you can burn it quite safe ways. You can burn it quite badly. I mean, it's possible to do it, you know, and certainly just creating energy from burning plastic isn't the best way. It's better to do through, through a more, uh, more complicated synthetic chemical process. But that is a viable alternative because I'm taking the 
oil that then makes it into the vinyl, or the coal that then makes it into the vinyl, I can then um, basically render it back into something which is the same as the coal or the oil from the, oil from the ground if I put it through a, a power station. So I can actually get the, I can get the useful application of my vinyl for 10 years or 20 years or however long that, that material is used. And at the end of it, I can then burn it and get energy from that. So I think there's something to be said for waste to energy or burning the materials, as long as it's done in a safe way where you're capturing all of the, the effluent, all of the, the, the gases that come off and making sure that those are cleaned and scrubbed. So there isn't much recycling of vinyl. There is burning of it for waste to energy, even though it's got a lot, lot better. It has still, have, still has some fundamental challenges with its materiality. Coming into this conversation, I think I, like I think anyone who's done a little reading around sustainability and around responsible material use, I thought, okay, reduce is the best, reuse maybe is next, recycle is, is next, and then far, far away is burning it. But hearing you speak, I'm realizing that it really depends on the individual material, the individual plastic, right? Different strategies might be useful for different materials. And then depending on how they've been used, if anyone's ever bought a, a cheap shower curtain, that's where vinyl is, is in your house, but it's yeah. also in many places that you don't, you don't realize. Some materials like polyester are, are combined with other materials that are not plastic at all, like wool or in different applications. The fashion industry is having that huge problem right now around that, you know, the combination of materials. So it, it, it's, such a, it's such a complicated landscape. Yes, it is. And that has been one of our biggest challenges is that it's, you know, my answer to every, every question about sustainability is it depends. As you said, it's dependent upon the material. It depends. You know, we talk about polyester as being this great material to recycle, but only about a quarter of it is ever recycled. So one out of only one out of every four soda bottles ends up back as another soda bottle. The other three are out there in the environment. They go to a landfill. They're in, they're in scenery. So there isn't... We, we talk about recycling being better than burning, but at our current rates, I think polyethylene is recycled at about one or five percent of the material. Same with polypropylene, vinyl, maybe maybe one percent, polystyrene, probably about the same amount. So our recycling rates are so abysmal that wouldn't it be better to find a, a, a solution which at least gets more of the material into a, a second use, even if it is just energy? If I can burn fifty percent of the material, then isn't that better than recycling only one percent of the material? So yeah, it's, it does depend. And the different types of plastics, yeah, as you said, some are easy to recycle, some are, some are hard, and some don't have a viable second life at the moment. So polyester is great because I know that a large amount of synthetic clothing is manufactured out of polyester. I've got a market out there for polyester. So if I've got a, perhaps a less well-known plastic, think about PLA, the, the corn-based plastic. You know, we started seeing some of that in our water bottles. We started seeing more of that and said, oh, let, let's recycle it. But no one, there's not enough of that material and there's not enough of a market to make it worthwhile to recycle that material. So unless, and this is perhaps one of the big challenges we have in a capitalist society, recycling only works when someone makes some money from it. And with our current oil prices being so low, it's very hard to make any money out of recycling because as oil prices and therefore plastic prices keep at a very, very low, it means that my recycle price is higher. So I'm, I'm actually paying more for a slightly lower quality product. Well, who would do that in a business? So that's the challenge we have with recycling. It needs to make money and therefore is fraught with the ups and downs of the oil prices, with the, it needs to make it as efficient as possible, with needing a, a viable second market for it. There comes a point where you think, well, 
if we want to do the best, we probably should be doing this, honestly, it should be government mandated or government controlled. But certainly, if we're only doing it to make money, I think we're always going to be fraught and it's always going to be a challenge. We're, n- we're never going to do it well until someone does it out of a need to maintain the planet rather than simply just making money out of it. Because at the moment, there isn't enough money out of recycling to make it you know, a, a good business to be in and a, and a business that means that, that you want to recycle more. Okay, so outside of my building, there's, there are men and women who walk past and they take our, our big plastic bags, transparent bags of all our recycling and they pick through it and they pick out the ones that have a, a deposit on them and they go to, to a machine and they'll basically make money that way. So that's our way of making their money. If there was a higher deposit on every plastic container, suddenly our recycling rates would go up significantly. They've done this in parts of Europe. So make the material itself more valuable. At the moment, my soda bottle has zero intrinsic value to me. It contains my soda, and that's great. But as soon as it stops containing my soda, it has no value. If we put a greater deposit on it, you know, some states are even doing this, then you, you create an inherent value in that plastic. And therefore, it's valuable to somebody. Someone's going to make some money out of it. So therefore, someone is going to recycle it. As you can see, I'm going all over the place. It's a complex issue, and there isn't a one-size-fits-all for any of these any of these materials. Andrew, I must say, as you were talking through the complexity, you burned through yet another assumption of mine, which is that bio-based plastics may be the future of weaning us away from fossil fuels. But from what I heard you talk about PLA, Maybe that's not as simple as, as we think it is either. Mm. Currently, there's about, I think, probably 300 million tons of plastics that is produced in the world. 1% of that is bioplastic. So we are woefully short a critical volume of bioplastics at the moment. I love, I love bioplastics. We have many of those materials in our library, and I'm constantly sourcing them and trying to recommend people use them. But we have multiple challenges. The first challenge being, of course, is the the raw material source. PLA comes from corn. Corn is potentially food. If I'm taking food away from people by making plastics, is that a good thing? So we want to make plastics out of more industrialized crops. So if we use castor beans for nylon, that's better because castor castor beans are already an industrialized crop. Can we make it out of wood? Because we've already got plenty of wood. Can we make it out of algae or seaweed, which, which we can industrialize and produce on a large scale without necessarily taking away from arable land? So our bioplastics need to come from a source that do not take from arable land or from food sources. That's a, a, a given. But the material tends to be a little more expensive because it, it's, unfortunately, it's growing plants and then harvesting them and synthesizing them, unfortunately, is slightly more expensive than digging a deep hole and taking the oil out of it. They are typically a little bit more expensive than regular plastics. And they're end of life. Now, some are compostable. Some you could potentially put in the ground or out there in the, in the forest or in the sea will break down reasonably quickly, months. So some are compostable, many are not though. So they're competing with existing petroplastics and some of them, if they get into the recycling stream can contaminate those plastics. So that's always the challenge with bioplastics is that unless it's a, a large enough volume, such as you have for polyester, polypropylene, polyethylene, then there is li- unlikely to be a, a viable recycling stream for them. Now we've seen bio-based plastics put in, into the recycling stream. So that is a potential solution. I think both Pepsi and Coke did that with their soda bottles where they basically use bioplastics to make biopolyester and then that goes into the recycling stream and that's fine because it's the same chemistry as your regular polyester. But even they have actually started moving away from that and are now using recycled plastics in their soda bottles, moving away from bio-based because it, it does have a lot of challenges. Price, raw material source, 
complexity of chemistry as well. It's a lot more complex than simply just, you know, as I said, digging a big hole in the ground and just pulling out the oil and then just cracking that. It has many challenges. Plastics themselves had many challenges when they were first created. The nylon that was produced in the 40s and 50s and that became popular, that probably wasn't anything like the performance we have now. It's not a level playing field. We're expecting our newly minted, just created bioplastic to compete with a material that we've been optimizing for half a century. That's a little unfair. So I think we at least need to give the bioplastics a little bit of time. I think some of these kinks will be ironed out. I think it is ultimately a better way of doing it than using oil. It's just at the moment, trying to compete with oil is challenging for the reasons I just stated. Okay, you've given me a little bit of my hope back, so that's great. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and so, you know, given all of this, can you give me a little bit of a taste of how do you advise your clients? You know, you have at Material Connection folks from all over industry and manufacturing come to you for suggestions and advice on what materials they should be using. How are you advising them at this point, specifically through this lens of responsible material use? Well, the first thing is the basic education. It's like letting them know what their options are and also having them understand it's not an isolated choice. You shouldn't design your product and say, oh, what material are we going to use? Or design your product with a material in mind. Oh, we should use a more sustainable material now. That's never a solution that's going to work. It's also going to increase your cost. What you need to do is you need to design thinking about a more sustainable material, what material you could use, and design based upon that material. Design with an understanding of what materials you could be putting in there to lower impact. If you do that, and also considering that the end of life of that product, I, I mentioned circular economy right at the start. That to me is essential to be considering. Now, no one's doing perfect circular economy yet, but it's the idea of rather than manufacturing a product, using it, and then at the end of its life throwing it away, that's very linear. Circular basically assumes that any material, uh, any material in that product could potentially go back into another product. So you need to design for disassembly. Now, architecture and design schools have been teaching this for a long time, but it's still not quite there. And I think circular economy hopefully will push us more in the right direction. The idea of, okay, so already be considering what will happen at the end of your product's life as you're designing it. So how do you design to ensure that that material can be pulled apart, is a more recyclable material, that the, the, the consumer will know what to do with it? So it's that part as well. So it's never just um, what material do you use, there are always unintended consequences associated with any material choice. So that's what we do as well. So whenever we say, okay, this is a new material A that we think is really good. These are some of the things you need to think about if you're going to design based upon it. These are some of the things you need to consider if you're going to think about an end of life for it. These are some of the things you're going to consider if you want to use marketing copy around it. It's never just like use material A. It's like it's a whole world associated with that that you need to educate the client about so that when they make that material choice, it's the best they possibly can. And they may, may not always make the most sustainable choice, but at least they're aware of those, how they could potentially improve for version 2.0, version 3.0. Sometimes it's just get the product out there and make it work, but then accept that, you know, we've also let them know how you could improve it for version 2.0. You could use maybe this material. You Maybe you can design it slightly different in this way. So as a way of continually improving and always trying to get towards a lower impact product uh, and to, to you know ultimately have less impact on on the planet through that material use well 
Welcome back. Today we're asking the question, what's the problem with recycling plastics? Segment two, fossil fuel free plastics. 10 years ago, plastics manufacturer Aquafil made a breakthrough with Equinil, which is a regenerated nylon used in carpets and other products. And they did it with the material that had those British kids concerned in their conversation with Boris Johnson, ocean plastics. Econil is made from nylon recovered from a variety of sources, including discarded fishing nets from the ocean, as well as carpet flooring and industrial plastics. I sat down with Giulio Bonazzi, CEO of Aquafil, to hear about how the company has pulled this off. Tell us a little bit about how you approach just the recycling process. How do you make sure that your impacts there are low and that you're optimizing it as much as possible? First of all, let me say that what you are saying is very true. And if you ask me, recycling should be mandatory. But of course, you have to develop the proper recycling technologies. And remember also that in any case, recycling is the last resource. Because first, we should make products that last. And then, of course, that are reusable and that can be easily repaired. And then only after these three very important steps, we must find a way to properly recycle the products at the end of use. And actually, one of the reasons of the superior characteristics of nylon is that thanks to its mechanical performances, you need less to have more. And through Econil, waste is becoming precious raw material and not a problem. Let's dig into that uh, a little bit more, the process of recycling nylon. How are you sort of able to get Econil, which is the nylon fiber from Aquafil, to be fossil fuel free? Because I know there's interesting recycling processes involved in that as well. Actually, we have taken years and hard work and my God, I'm almost, almost crying, large investments. <laughs> Today, more than $200 million in something like 10 years. Because actually, there is no free lunch, unfortunately, if we want to solve the environmental problem. We need to invest a lot of money and involve the most talented people. And this is exactly what we at Aquafil are trying to do. But I love to tell you this story. When we launched the Econil project, we, luckily, vastly underestimated the challenges of transforming waste into products. To make an industry becoming circular from linear, you have to be also a little bit crazy. This is just something difficult to imagine, but something that we are also becoming to make a reality. $200 million over 10 years, that is an incredible number. But, you know, we are going to need commitments of that order, especially in, in very challenging parts of industry. What is the next challenge for Aquafil and for the design industry? How do we start to scale up the kind of breakthroughs you've had at Aquafil? How do we start to scale those up? How do we start to see bigger impacts there? How many hours do I have to make a proper list? <laughs> there are so many, actually. But uh, if you force me to pick me one today, I would go for design for remanufacturing or eco-design. I mean, having... Econil and being able to regenerate ugly waste such as fishing gears, carpets, textile and nylon plastics, we have the possibility to re-engineer products, making them with zero waste and thus easily recyclable, so fully circular. We at Aquafil today making already more than 40% of our sales coming out of Econil. 
that is several tenths of thousands of metric tons of waste that instead of going to landfill or even worse, being abandoned in the oceans, are turning back into pure nylon through the econil process. Okay, this is not easy, uh, takes time, takes money, but on the other side, it is not impossible. And I like to say that if we want to go to Mars, I'm sure that we can take a good care of our planet, can't we? I couldn't agree with you more there, Julio. Before we start to, you know, take ourselves to another planet and and muck that up, you know, let's let's clean up our own backyard. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lauren Volker. Today's episode was produced in partnership with Aquafil. If you liked today's episode, check the links in the show notes for articles on metropolismag.com that dive deeper into the topics we've discussed today. A big thanks to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Deep Green, available wherever you get your podcasts.